Hi there, my name's Oshin Lunny and welcome to Audio Talks, presented to you by Harman. And in this episode, we're going to discuss music, rights, relationships and technology and how this can help you get paid in a digital age. And I'm thrilled to be joined by two of the foremost experts of the field of music rights in a digital world today. Welcome to the podcast, Vicky Norman. Thank you so much. And Orsa Karild. Thank you so much. Hey, Taxamika, great to have you both here. Okay, in time-honored tradition, as if we were sitting at a stage at a music industry and tech conference, I would love for you both just to share with our audience a little bit about what you do and the overlap with rights and technology. And we're going to start with yourself, Vicky. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So my name is Vicky Nam, and um, I run the consultancy Cross Border Works, and. Uh, and it largely sits in between the music industry and the technology industry and all of the adjacent industries that that crash into music. And I use that word very specifically because they very frequently do crash into this industry, whether it's gaming or financial services, data platforms, DSPs. Um, and I, I help them make sense of the music industry and create products and new business models. An incredibly valuable guidance service as much of anything. You know, you kind of filter down a lot of the tech that's happening and share it with the right people in the right way so that it can actually kind of maximize their potential. That's brilliant, Vicky. And I've seen you speak many times and you always kind of manage to sum things up in a way that's very practical and usable for the delegates. So uh, thank you for joining us. And coming over to you, also tell us a bit about your fantastic work and the overlap with music, technology and rights. Oh, thank you. Well, there's still a lot to do here in in this field. But uh, I think if I look back at what I have been working on for many years with different hats on, it has to be trying to improve um, the world for music in a digital area. So it goes back all the way from being working in a mu- digital music service to working for Stream online licensing, helping setting up ICE and running the other Nordics, the Polaris Music Hub, and also you're yeah, working for Utopia. So in my past, it's always been technology, music rights, and improving the world for those creators that are out there. And also, one thing to mention here, I am here not representing any company, but speaking as me, Orsa. Gotcha. Okay, fantastic. Well, it's good to have the full Orsa here. That's absolutely brilliant. And listeners, if you are not familiar with the name, you may well be rewarded by checking out Orsa's wonderful back catalogue of music, not only as a label owner, but as a recording artist, as a composer. And really, you're somebody who's joined together a huge spectrum of activity around, you know, writing, composing, performing music and taking it all the way through to the business side of things. And I'm always impressed whenever we meet up to hear the amazing things you're working on. So I think it might be helpful for the listeners. We have explored some of these themes in previous episodes of the Audio Talks podcast. We've spoken about opportunities for the creator community. We've spoken about democratizing the music industry, but it'd be great just to have a recap on, you know, what are the main music rights that musicians need to be aware of? Of and our listeners should be aware of who'd like to jump in there. So generally, the music rights that are important to cover here is the master owner rights, ownership of the masters, the performers, the rights of the people who actually play on the records, and then the composition rights, which are the main thing. Then we also have the sync rights, which is interesting to explore in itself, because when you try to define it clearly, it's not really written in law. You can help me here, Vicky, if you 
disagree, but it, but it's more like a, a concept that we are using rather than a particular right that's been described. And then, of course, we also have the wonderful world of mechanical and performance rights. So when a song has been played, it depends on if it's been broadcasted for radio, TV and such. It's traditionally been a performance right that has happened. And when it's been copied, like made a CD or DVD or vinyl, it's the mechanical. And that's quite interesting because that's been interpreted in the new digital world. Yeah, I would add to that that in the world that we're operating in now, we have different business models that light up all sorts of different rights that she just mentioned. And so, you know, DSPs like Spotify and Apple Music use those rights in a particular way. Gaming and other kinds of video usage use sync, which is really more of a norm than it is part of a copyright law. But as we're entering and starting to really get into the world of Web3, there's also a further right, which is artist name and likeness and their publicity rights. And, um, and these are rights that are very frequently reserved by the artist. And in a world that we're in with Web3, this is very much an artist-centric approach. And so any of the platforms also have to make sure that they're getting the artist name and likeness rights, and those may be held separately from the sound recording rights. Right. So, you know, for, as you're both kind of outlining there, it's a really interesting time in terms of rights. It's all kind of changing very quickly. We're, we're sort of still using the definitions, you know, as you're saying, also from radio and TV and live performance. But then, Vicky, as you were saying, we've got this whole new world of Web3 and the metaverse. And do you think that we need new kinds of rights or, or do you think that our old rights kind of translate appropriately to the new world that we're in? I think there is definitely a need to dig into what are the new rights, make it possibly a bit standardised as well. I mean, just a, an on-demand stream is interpreted differently in every country. Some have 70% performance, 30% mechanical, someone has 65 and, you know, it's not standardised anywhere. So I think to have the possibility of simplifying how we treat rights that would be wonderful, but also almost close to impossible <laughs> when you look at the players we have today. But it's not impossible. And especially when, as Vicky said, new rights are coming in as the artist likeness right, then there is a possibility here to jump and do something maybe that could be standardized across the board. Vicky, what say you? I definitely think that we're still using the rights from previous eras. Even the containers in which songs are released are still from previous eras. You know, there's no reason why we need to have three-minute songs. That was for radio. Yeah. And there's no reason why albums are with 10 songs. That was for CDs. And so we always end up drawing from the past yeah. into the future. And then there's an overlap, a bridge between these eras. And then they start to become shaped into whatever the models are. And one of the things that's really challenging right now with Web3 is every single NFT project is different. The metaverse, a lot of those things really do come down to whether the music is embedded in the experience and then it's likely a sync or if it's more music that's running in the background, then it usually isn't a sync, but it has its own norm around it. But especially with NFTs and some of the things around fractionalizing rights and 
all of these, how does the money flow and what rights are being granted and to whom in a decentralized platform as opposed to a centralized platform, it opens up an enormous number of questions on interpretations. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. We had a previous edition of the podcast where we uh, were delighted to be joined by Imogen Heap and Tim Exile, who were working on an NFT together, and a wonderful music and entertainment lawyer called Cliff Fluet, a great raconteur, shall we say. And, uh, you know, they were really kind of opening up this can of worms of creative rights and what Web3 could mean in terms of musicians collaborating with their listeners in a completely new way. But it does open up a can of worms around, are the old rights appropriate for these completely completely new decentralized digital assets, as you say there, Vicky. We seem to be in a time of immense change. We have the streaming platforms, we've got more music being uploaded per hour than ever before. There's a huge volume of stuff happening. Do you think that the major players in the industry are moving with the speed of, of change that's happening kind of on the ground. You mentioned there that the likeness rights haven't really been captured by the, the major labels. And so this is something that's probably beneficial for the artist. Are you seeing any movement in terms of the major players and adopting new technology? Or is it more kind of um, startups and disruptive companies who are carving up this new world of rights in the digital era? It's definitely being led by artists and by mm. startups and technologists. And I've heard all sorts of crazy things from some of the startups, including one, when I was, I looked at what they were building and I said, okay, let me just pause you right now and explain that, you know, the things that you're assuming about what the artist is bringing to the table are wrong because the artist, especially if you're working with a signed artist, they actually don't probably have the authority to grant you their own sound recording rights, and they're probably not going to go and gather the 10 publishers and normalize all of their expectations against this exploitation, and that the liability will be on your platform for any of those rights that are not cleared. And their response was, well, we've looked at that, and we think we're operating outside of the copyright system. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. <laughs> so I no. said, well, Tell it to the judge, I, think you'll, yeah. I think you'll find your partners think that you're operating squarely inside the copyright system. Oh, so I probably am not going to be able to help you right now, but good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> but, wow. but, but it is an, an immense problem when you have really great ideas coming up with new tech companies who want to do something and then they run into the wall of copyright and rights and not having the resources to make global licenses and attain all those rights, even if the idea is fantastic, there is a blocker there for them to actually do it. Yeah, absolutely. And so then the music industry becomes another pariah and rights become a pariah. And what I try to do with companies, you know, whether they're in gaming or metaverse or building an NFT platform, or even they're just looking at lighting up, they see a a narrow window and it's squarely in web two is I always really talk to them about, you know, successes that I have had where companies, gaming companies, AI companies, you know, startups that I've worked with have had successful exits 
and they've had exits without the parent company being sued. And that if you build a, a solution for music and you don't sort out the rights, the asking for forgiveness is very different than asking forgiveness if you miss an anniversary with your partner. <laughs> asking for forgiveness in the music industry is very, very expensive. Oh, yeah. You pay for everything in the past at a premium, everything going forward at a premium, and no one really wants to work with you anymore. Yeah. Versus get things right from the start. And the, the great thing about everything with Web3 and artist-centric initiatives is you don't need every single rights holder on the planet to opt into your business like Spotify and Apple Music and Rhapsody and Mog and all these companies that are long gone. They were in the absolute worst position of being able to experiment or do anything with music rights. But in the world that we're entering, if you need just a handful of artists who are going to use your technology, um, you know, then you have a great opportunity to find artists and partners who buy into your vision and who want to leverage your technology. And if there's an artist or a label or a publisher who doesn't want your vision to come to life, move on and find someone else who does. And there's a fundamental shift that's happening around this. I've seen some really nice examples with gaming studios sort of collaborating from day one with a record label, for example, an indie label, and, and sort of working together with them in, in sort of creating these kind of experiences. Of course, it's limited, but it's at least licensed and, and on the right side of the copyright law. That's exactly right. It used to be that the only way that you could do anything was to, you know, go to the major labels immediately out of the gate before you even had product market fit with your game or with your technology. But there's great music with independent labels. I work with a lot of gaming companies, including Beat Saber, which is now owned by Oculus. And we started out with Monster Cat and we started out with one of the founders, Yaroslav, is a composer and a lot of the original music that's in the game, he and his friends composed. And as we got more traction, we, we were able to get more and more music into the game. And it becomes something that if you get this right with a smaller artist or smaller independent labels and smaller publishers at the beginning... You create a discipline for your company that's really, really important around tracking and reporting and being able to have money flow and pay your partners that you're exponentially better set up once the time comes to engage with a major rights holder if you've gotten that those pieces into place and you have an operational system that you can present to them. Your quote about some companies asking for forgiveness rather than permission. I mean, it's not uncommon in the world of technology, mm. but, you know, the whole point of the music industry in terms of equitable remuneration is the effective management of rights for the composers, for the performers. It's really the crux of how the whole thing ticks over. And when you get it wrong, I mean, there's a great example of the Verve for that song, Bittersweet Symphony. They just 
took a chunk of an old Rolling Stones instrumental and they didn't see any royalties from it, I believe, for like 22 years. And then eventually Mick Jagger, in an act of benevolence, decided to let them have some royalties from the song. But if you cheese off the wrong person, you can absolutely see all of your revenue just evaporate in a lawsuit. It's its very highly possible. But Vicky, you mentioned there that it feels like there's a new generation of folks coming into this world. They're sort of bypassing some of the old structures because, you know, Web3, blockchain, NFTs, this opens up new creative possibilities. And I get the impression that the younger generation of musicians are very much more open to this stuff where, you know, folks who've maybe grown up in the previous physical media age are not quite as agile. I mean, I'd be curious to get your take on this, you know, about the new generation, the Gen Zs, how they are embracing new ways of decentralised rights management. And, you know, maybe is there something that the more senior generations might learn from them? What say you? Absolutely. And I think there's a younger generation of artists where they're definitely part of this creator economy Mm. that they want to control everything. They want to own everything so that they can leverage technologies. They look at everything in Web3, whether it's fractionalizing their rights and bringing their fans into a community to you know, leverage and get financing from them. If it's blockchain, if it's NFTs, metaverse, if you own everything, you look at that landscape and you can be nimble. You can do anything that you want. And for them, they look at the existing system of sound recording, having 10 writers on every song and belonging to a performing rights organization. They look at that and they say, well, that makes no sense at all. If I do that, I can't do these things. And so there's a very different generation. And then, but we have a conundrum because most of the music that people want to hear and that is of renown, is in the old system. And it is tied up in label recordings. And maybe there's featured artists and you have a shared master in addition to samples and 10 publishers and you're on a PRO, which then creates an entire mix of complexity of how you as a creator, but a signed creator, have to navigate. And we need a bridge between these worlds, but I'm already seeing a pulling apart of these two sections of our industry into different ecosystems. And if you're a young artist coming up into Web3, you will eventually, if you want your music in Spotify, you're going to have to embrace some of these things. But there's definitely a major, major shift occurring. I have to say something in regards of putting my society hat on here that I have had for for, for many years. Uh, remembering starting starting at uh, Steam 2012, I think the first thing I did was like, oh, so how can we get more flexible in regards of getting music licensed in games? Um, we still haven't really solved that from society's perspective fully. But I think one thing that would be really important is that societies are flexible and embrace the new needs of the era because there is strength in the collecting society, especially against big major studios and and keeping as much as possible to go together and not stand by yourself in regards of negotiating your rights. Uh, It's it's an amazing strength. And I think 
there is a lot of will in society world to do these changes and I and you, you see it everywhere. I think Corona is the Corona era is in a great example where you have seen societies uh, you know working much quicker than before in setting up new sort of licenses for online performances and things that usually would have taken years it suddenly happened because it had to i think that's an excellent point about you know the collective the collective power of all of these entities because it's a trade off right if you're a, if you're a young artist and you own everything and you're you're using technologies to leverage your fan base that's great right now because it's a very very experimental time. But I think over the next couple of years we're going to start to see sustainable viable business models occurring. And then you think, okay, we're beyond the experimental phase maybe in a year, two years, three years. How once these things once it gets real and there's real money at stake and you need to start engaging in negotiating it's not just about leveraging creator tools now the platform is going to propose you know a, a certain revenue structure how are those little artists going to fare in a negotiation with a huge technology platform and that's where there is advantage to being a part of this, what, as I put in air quotes, the old system, our existing norms of sound recording, you know, labels, publishers, and performing rights organizations, and that you do have collective power if you actually are negotiating and you're not just an individual using creator tools. Yeah, yeah, completely. I remember, uh, Osa, we bumped into each other in London many moons ago, and uh, you were actually on a trip to represent the rights of Swedish composers and the, the Swedish Collecting Society. And you were sort of um, negotiating, shall we say, with the big tech companies. So it's something I think that both of you do brilliantly is you understand technology, how it overlaps with rights, but you know how the rights of music composers and performers work. And uh, particularly with your work with Stim, Osa, you protect those rights, you fight for them, and you're fighting against some of the biggest companies in the world. Maybe fighting against is the wrong word. You're negotiating, you're doing well, deals you're, with the biggest it, companies in the deals, world. It's deals, it's relationship building, right? Relationship uh, building, right. It can sometimes become very fierce. Yeah, totally. Things, <laughs> things can get real, absolutely. Broadening the, the scope a little bit here, I, I've always fascinated to read what's happening at Hypnosis Song Management. So uh, that dude, Mark Mercure, is a very interesting person, obviously super passionate about music, super passionate about working with iconic acts of 20 and 21st century music. And he recently added Justin Timberlake to the roster over there. They're back to the tune of a billion by private investment firm Blackstone. So the smart money can see that music rights are incredibly valuable. And hypnosis is, do you think it's kind of bypassing the quote unquote old systems or is it optimizing it? Where do kind of new disruptive players like hypnosis fit into this new world where we have digital ecosystems, we have the quote unquote old school, you know, rights agencies, the major labels, the publishers. I'm curious to get your take on what we think this means. Well, I definitely think that Merck and hypnosis have been very, very disruptive in terms mm. of rights changing hands. And it's not just the traditional rights that oftentimes, you know, you sell the publisher's share, but the writer keeps the writer's share. And so what hypnosis is doing is amassing an enormous number of compositions and some of the most iconic songs on the platform. 
some of the multiples that are being paid are extraordinary. And so, you know, in the back of my mind, I always think from a, a financial standpoint, whenever I see people paying huge multiples for assets of any kind, whether it's mm. startups and technology companies, like when Facebook bought Oculus, a lot of people were like, wow, why did they yeah. do that? And then Facebook bought Instagram and then and WhatsApp and people were scratching their heads saying, why are they doing all of this? These are things that don't make sense from a financial standpoint because they had a big plan. And so with hypnosis, you know, I always think about what is that big plan? Is it going to end up being sold to a technology company that can then leverage all of those rights and just, you know, completely detach itself from the traditional industry? Is it going to be sold back to, you know, a major label and major publisher? Um, Is it going to be a private equity play? And um, I don't think that's completely clear yet, but I think that it's Merck who loves music and who's so passionate about music. But if you take Merck out of it, and you just look very analytically at the set of rights, it's really valuable. And I cannot imagine that that is not going to get sold at a premium at a future date, perhaps sooner than we might think, to someone else who's interested in being a disruptor in the industry in some capacity, or a major rights holder that's saying, we are not going to let this disrupt the industry, we're going to bring it back into our fold. But it's, you know, overall, the interest in investing in music rights, it it feels like it's everywhere at the moment. We we have it all all the way from uh, the companies like CoWrite, who lets uh, fans invest in future earnings from some of the artists. We've got Tangy Markets. So it's a big shift, I think, in regards of, in a way, getting almost new money into into the system that wasn't there before. And if this money can be used for enabling creators in a better way or making this world better and improving it for the creators, then that's it's an interesting trend to see what's going on now because there's so many companies, you know, digging into this. It's such a good point about it. Is it empowering? Because a lot of younger artists are looking at the finance and we have legacy artists who those songs, those songs are like their children. You know, it's their life and their life stories that are, that are woven into the songs and iconic music that has come out of the civil rights movement and eras of great social importance. But then there's a younger generation of very established writer producers who are very transactional and they you know, they view the availability of capital as just a tool. They're going to write a series of songs, let them become hits, and then sell them, and then Mm -hmm. use that money, the proceeds to that, to go into the studio, do it over again, negotiate great administrative deals so that they're getting the benefit of the way that the ecosystem works, but they maintain control through admin deals, and then they write another series of songs, get those recorded, they're out, they're hits, sell them again. And so we've got a lot of different viewpoints on, is that money just, you know, taking advantage of short-term needs that artists haven't been able to tour and they've been Mm. short of money and they need to get rid of their rights to, it's completely empowering 
and I like to think that in my view, I think the artists have a lot more power to make those choices now than they ever have before because of the availability of capital, but they need smart people to help them make the right choices. 100%. That's great. That's that's quite an optimistic uh, note to kind of start wrapping up on. Thank you for that. So I wonder if there was one tip that you would share with our listeners who are maybe musicians, producers, performers. I suspect everyone knows that owning your own rights and, you know, working with the right performing rights organization or partnering with the right tech companies, it's super important because that is your, your future income. Or it can be yeah, as you're saying there, Vicky, it can be kind of like a lump sum. You can kind of cash in sooner and fund the next stage of your career. If there was one thing you could recommend to anybody listening in terms of being on top of their rights or managing their rights properly, what would it be? And we're going to start with yourself, Vicky. I think you have to really look at yourself in the mirror and mm. say, you know, where am I in my career and what do I want? And the, if you're really early in your career, it might be the best thing to house your publishing rights at song trust and release your music through cd baby and be really nimble and get into web3 and experiment there have your pro collecting for you and make sure that your music is is distributed in all of the existing platforms but even in that scenario you need to register everything. You need to have the right metadata. You need to register and you need to probably have a team. And I think that this DI, true DIY where you are really doing things yourself, it's almost a myth. And so think about who are the people around you that you need. Maybe they're collaborators. Maybe it's a part-time manager. Maybe it's someone who works with you around these more new tech initiatives helping you to evaluate the platforms, but you need a team and you need to have headspace and time to hone your musical craft, but you need to leverage really, really great platforms for your sound recording, mechanical rights, and your performance rights, and then experiment and enjoy, you know, enjoy the time period that we have right now, but collect everywhere that you possibly can. Okay. ABC, always be collecting. I love it. And over to yourself also. What say you? I agree with what Ricky says. And, and I, I was thinking about this a little bit before. And it's such a challenge to do all the things that we would recommend. You should be entrepreneurial. You should, be, for pure, do it yourself person. Mm. You should make sure that the ISRCs, the, the links for the master recordings are linked to the works when it's registered and check the peer. This is so hard. I would assume that the most amazing musicians are sitting in a cellar somewhere and you will never hear them because you can't be everything. And in, in that sense, there is always this trade-off. Will you have help and sort of work together with people and give up some of your future revenues? Or can you actually get to work with them and keep all the revenues? But I would assume to take help and carefully address the, um, the sort of leverage between having the headspace, having the possibility of focusing on what you do well, if that is being a musician, or maybe you are this entrepreneurial person and maybe you can help other musicians as well if you're into that. But then as well, I mean, it's an amazing world in regards to the new experiences when it comes to gaming and music and what you can do, NFTs that you could create that didn't really exist back in the days and play around, find new ways. Everything isn't invented yet. It's still possible to 
you know, you can do something new and connect it with your music. And then also, as you both mentioned, music can be anything. It doesn't have to be the three minute song. It doesn't have to be the albums. I've met several musicians that are doing these short clip, yes, like a chorus thing, but they do it really well and they make stems for them so people can play around with it and do new kind of experiences. So make sure you can stay creative, always be registered as as you both (laughs) mentioned, but also make sure you can focus on what you're good at and bring help in. Oh, fantastic. That was such like golden advice there from both of you. You know, um, don't be afraid to experiment, be playful, collaborate. Remember that 80% of something, 50% of something amazing is much better than 100% of absolutely nothing. So, but in order to get any percent of anything, you need to be registered, you need to be collecting uh, words to live by. So I have one more question for each of you. It is a very important question. We'd like to ask all of our VIP listeners this question. And I'm going to come to yourself first, Orsa. What track would you like to add to our fabulous audio talks title playlist and why so most of my life in the late number of years i have been working to try to improve the situation for creators new creators coming in so i chosen a new creator who released this track on her 18th birthday she also happens to be my daughter tiger fantastic (laughs) what's the name of the track it's called box of hearts i love that Box of Hearts by Tiger. That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Elsa. What a lovely personal thing to add. And, and Tiger's music is fantastic. I have heard it. It's absolutely wonderful. And Vicky, how about your good self? What track would you like to add to our title playlist? Well, I would like to add the Imagine Dragons song, Believer. And I love the song. Many, many people have heard it. But the reason that I, I want to put it in there is because when I was working with, first working with Beat Saber, in the early days, this is really the first commercial music song pack that we released. Wow. And it was it was a beast to get everyone on board with a gaming studio out of Prague in a VR game. Yeah. And publishers were coming back to me saying, what? Why are we doing this? You know, what, what are you coming to us with this weird game? We don't understand it. But I got them to take a chance. And I said, you know, it's a really good game. They're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, we're creating a really great business model for music. We know that it's going to work. And then once we got everything in, it was a huge success. But for me personally, when I played Beat Saber for the first time and listened to these Imagine Dragons songs, especially the song Believer, I was completely blown away because the context of hearing a song like that in an immersive game. Now, every time I hear the song Believer, I think about the game. And when I play the game, I think about the song. And so it's the power of music. And when you get it combined with technology and you get the rights sorted out, it's such a win for everyone. And that, to me, is the perfect song to illustrate that. I love what you've just described of having an experience with the song, but then you experience it within this new interactive technology space and the song takes on more meaning, more resonance to you personally. And of course, that expanded experience is now your relationship with the song. I love it. And from my side, I am going to contribute to the playlist a song called Fight for Your Right to Equitable Remuneration as a Creator 
and party. I think they shortened the title. That's, of course, by the Beastie Boys. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, thank you both so much for joining us on the Audio Talks podcast to share all that wisdom, all that great, optimistic, but very, very expert guidance for musicians, creators, and folks working in the tech industry of any age across the spectrum. That was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much to Vicky Norman. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Awesome. Great to see you, Vicky. Thanks for joining us. And thank you so much to Orsa Karild. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. I don't want it to end, actually. That was just so brilliant. I absolutely loved every second of that. I learned a lot. Thank you for everything that you're doing for the world of creators, for the world of rights. And thank you for joining us here today, both of you. That was just lovely. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe, comment and share with your friends and family. If you're enjoying the Audio Talk series of podcasts, why not pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a glowing review. It really does mean a lot to us and it helps new listeners know about the amazing guests we talk to in every episode, just like Osa and Vicky. For more exclusive content, some behind the scenes goodies and maybe even some competitions, connect with Audio Talks on Instagram. You can find us at Audio Talks. Talks podcast. We'll be back soon for some more fascinating audio talks. See you next time.